Hey guys, this is the Real Life Monopoly Podcast. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my partners and brothers, Kenneth and Kerwin Donis. We are real estate investors, and the point of our podcast is to help you reach your financial goals, which will allow you to have time to focus on your true passion so that you can live not only a happier, but more fulfilled life. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, today on the show, we'll be having Mark Kenny out of Texas. Mark and his wife, Tamil own 7,500 apartment units, mostly in the southeast they focus on value-add opportunities, and we are really lucky to have them. Um, Mark is a great, great guy and, and a great guest, and, and we learned a lot from him. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Thank you for tuning in with the Donis Brothers. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my two brothers, Kerwin and Kenneth. Hey, guys. Hey, you guys. And today on the show, we'll be having Mark Kenny out of Texas. Uh, Mark, if you don't mind just introducing yourself to the audience. Hey guys, good to see you. Uh, yeah, a little quick background about myself. Um, grew up in Michigan. I'm in Dallas now. Uh, went to school for accounting, was CPA for a while, but started buying real estate when I was a senior in college, smaller properties. Uh, did IT consulting, had an IT business, and continued to buy small properties, kind of two to four units. And then in uh, 2013, I started looking at doing syndications which I didn't even know it was until 2013. I invested passively with a couple other guys I knew. And then my wife, Tamil and I decided to kind of focus more on larger multifamily. My IT business was going well financially, but it was not going well personally because I was gone all the time and worked non nonstop. So it caused some problems. And then that's what we've been doing since then. And then we founded Think Multifamily that uh, both buys properties and tries to help other people that are looking to do syndications on their own as well. So I kind of wanted to get a little more insight onto how your life changed after you started investing in real estate. And you kind of touched on it. You said that you had some problems with the IT business. So could you maybe just explain how, what those problems were and how real estate investing solved them? Yeah, for me, you know, a lot of people that come into different professions or look at doing multifamily, they do it for purely uh, initially financial reasons, which that's fine. People, that's where everyone starts out lots of times. For me, it wasn't as much. Um, I was doing, in my mind, you know, pretty decent um, IT business. But for me, I literally worked like 90 plus hours a week. I'd sleep like three hours a night. And, uh, you know, I was able to do some stuff with my kids, but really completely ignored my my wife, Tamil, and I was like, well, the kids are going to be big before we know it. And now they are actually 16 and 13. Um, so I focus a lot uh, you know, my energy there. And um, maybe it was in 2015 or so where I'm at 14. I can't remember exactly where it you know, became more of a bigger issue where to me, it was kind of like you either needed to start doing, you know, something else or or else, basically. And um I had a decision to make. I mean, I could have said, well, I, you know, I like doing IT. I'm, you know, kind of have a good business going and things like that. But I just told her that we both love real estate. I mean, she started buying real estate. I, she got married was 20 to me. And uh, I had bought properties before that. And then we started buying properties together. So we knew we loved real estate. And then we wanted to, you know, I said, you have to help me, though, if we're going to do this, um, because I, I just don't really have a lot of extra time, which I didn't. And then, as I mentioned, we invested passively in, in several deals in a short period of time. And we're like, well, we can do this. 
And that's when we started looking at it. So for me, it was really more uh, family. And then uh, personally, it was, you know, I had, I had no time for myself. I really didn't, I didn't really eat very well. I mean, what I mean, I just didn't, didn't eat very much. Um, so I just didn't take care of myself. So it was a physical, if you want to say. And then, you know, third, which initially I would have thought was probably less important, but it's very important now, was that I didn't really have any, if we went out with friends, it wasn't very often. I went to a movie. I mean, I could go to a movie and not even tell you what it was about. I just sit there and all I was doing was thinking about work the entire time. You're running through th- scenarios in my head. And now we have you know people in our in our group that we do a lot of stuff with. So for me, it's been family, you know, financially, and it's it's been very good for us. And then also with uh, just kind of having a lot more people that we connect with, and you know, we vacation vacation together and go out together and things like that. So uh, that's kind of my those are kind of my whys, if you want to say. If you don't mind going into why you uh, chose multifamily as the, um, the business that you're currently in. Uh, I know that you said you purchased some properties when you first started out. So do you just mind going into why you transitioned into multifamily? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I have a twin brother too, like you guys, which I can definitely relate identical twin brother. We started buying together when we were, you know, 21, I guess maybe. And um, it just made sense to me. Like people need a place to live. And then, you know, I got loans initially, you know, we didn't make much money when we got out of school at all, you know, college and things like that. And the, the loans we had for properties were recourse loans too, which means we had personal liability, which, you know, made me nervous, um, especially if some units weren't rented, we had to cover cover that, right? And um, so we looked at, to me and I looked at different things. We, we were already buying small properties. Said, well, if you buy larger properties, you get advantages from using, you know, third-party property management company, which, you know, I, I hated the small units. My brother and I were doing everything ourselves. I mean, we'd get home 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night and go shovel. We lived in Michigan, go shovel snow and stuff like that because we're like, well, we can't pay someone to do it because we want to make money um, and we're capable of doing it. That's a, that's a big, you know, no, no. Just because you're capable of doing something doesn't mean you should do it. And, um, we looked at other things. I, I do like self-storage and like some other asset classes. But for me, everyone needs a place to live. Not everyone needs not everyone needs self-storage. Um, and it just made a lot of sense. Once you start going above, you know, when you go five units and above, then the lenders look at it completely different. It's not recourse. You have a lot more, um, you know, ways to increase your, your net worth and things like that by increasing the value of the property. So that's why we like, you know, liked uh, multifamily. Kind of a similar story as to how we got started. Of course, we started in the single family space and chose to transition generally just because of the economies of scale and, and all. But do you mind kind of going into your first deal and giving us a, yeah. a simple breakdown as to how that happened and what were some barriers you guys kind of had to overcome? Yeah, our first deal was um, we looked, we were looking for 100 plus unit deals as a general statement, um, but we were just trying to build relationships with brokers, which is key to the business. And uh, a guy had a 32 unit for sale and I, didn't, I wasn't really interested in just a 32 unit. I really wasn't, but I wanted to meet the broker and tour the property and learn and learn that, that process. So I met the broker and then when we were there, he said, well, the, the seller has another 32 units like right there, which is like, you know, 300 feet away um, that he would potentially sell as well. So um, we said, well, we're interested if we can get both of them. And we went under, you know, kind of, did LOI and went under a contract. Um, some of the challenges for me on that deal 
you know, underwriting wasn't as big of a challenge, really. Although there's a lot of things back then I didn't know that I know now, and I wish I, I wish I knew then. But reality, the mechanical piece of it, you know, wasn't an issue, just because of the background. But I was really nervous and um, about raising capital. Had no idea whether we'd be able to raise the money or not. At the time, it seemed like a big a big raise as well, and everyone saw me as an IT guy. So what are they going to think? You know, now you're doing real estate. I mean, I had been doing small stuff, but nobody really even knew where I was doing it, right? So now I'm, you know, I'm going to try to raise capital through a syndication. Um, that was a big, big fear um, for me. Uh, the transaction was pretty smooth overall. Um, we did run into a glitch three, four days before closing thereabouts, where lender came back and said they weren't going to sign off on it because there was an HOA at the property. So what, one of the two properties. It had 32 units all individually deeded. They were never condos or anything like that. But in 1984, uh, there was, you know, they said, hey, there's an HOA associated with this. And the seller was like, there's no HOA. There's never been one. But we had to get, kind of get over that hurdle there. So that's that's something that we didn't plan on happening and, you know, threw a wrench in it and actually pushed closing out a little bit, too, in order to make it happen like a week or two. But we got around that. But that's really the only kind of glitch it ran into during the transaction you did touch on it a little bit about your fear of raising capital and i think that's something that most people would be afraid of so could you maybe explain how you went about raising that capital yeah you know fortunately um Timil and i were all in like we're, we're hey we're gonna we're gonna start doing larger properties so we were going to events and, and meetups and, and things like that and we just kind of started meeting a lot of people and then in addition, you know, I had, uh, you know, people from the IT industry that m most of them, you know, made decent money and had some capital where they could, you know, potentially invest in some deals. And that helped as well. So I just kind of um, I reached out to people that were, you know, I had a, you know, fortunately, I had a pretty good email list just from people I had done IT business with, but they didn't necessarily know I was doing larger multifamily. And then one thing I did is any event I would go to or meet up, I would actually, you know, any information I'd get from somebody, I would always follow up within 24 hours without a doubt. And uh, that's where a lot of people fall down in my mind is that they go to these events, they spend, you know, sometimes thousands of dollars to go between travel and they waste, you know, waste their weekend potentially in my mind because they're not actually building any relationships while they're there. They don't follow up with anybody and they have a big stack of business cards on their desk. So that's one thing that to me and I did, you know, pretty well was follow up with people. And then I get on a phone call with as many people as I, as I could. Um, so that's just, I mean, it sounds so fundamental, but I can tell you there are tons of people that they don't do that simple thing. If you can do that, um, you're going to set yourself apart from other people. So just kind of follow up on something you mentioned earlier regarding when you, you were a limited partner in some deals that you mentioned. When you would approach a general partner, what were some things you were looking for and how did you vet them? Okay. Yeah. So the first guy I invested with, I had already known for like 10 years or so. So for me, it was more vetting the deal. And um, I was able to kind of vet the deal in my mind, even with, uh, even though I had probably pretty limited knowledge at that point in time but i could figure out i mean just you know from uh looking at trends and things like that i was able to do that so that one you know really probably doesn't count too much and then this the uh, second third one i did was with a guy 
that um, I had met at an event and they had a pretty big operation going already. I don't, at that time, it's probably a hundred million a year or so, which seemed like a lot for sure at the time. And um, I knew some people that knew this guy. So I asked around, it's a small world. You ask around, you kind of, you kind of get, you know, kind of the lowdown on different people, but there are certain things you're going to, you're going to want to know how long you've been doing it. You know, have they ever had any issues? Um, if they've had issues, you know, how could they have prevented it? Um, those type of things. And then some of it's just more like how much are they asking you to invest? Are they invest? Is it $50,000 investment or is it a $250,000 investment that they're asking for? Um, and then the return, potential returns and things like that. But there, you know, there's a whole slew of questions you should probably ask. We have actually on our website too questions you can ask before you invest. Um, and there are other, other things like have they ever filed bankruptcy? Have they ever, you know, defaulted on loans? Ever been removed as a manager? Those type of things. But first guy was easy and knew, knew him for a long time. Second guy had already been doing it for a while, pretty well established uh, operation. And then I had asked around for the people I knew in the industry. You know, you're investing a lot of money. And so you want to make sure that these people yeah. are, are trustworthy. And just kind of flip it around from the general partner's perspective. What are some different kinds of structures these deals can take on? Yeah, so I would say, you know, initially I would make um, make the structure as simple as possible, personally. I wouldn't make it super complicated because if people are confused reading something or you're trying to explain it to them, they'll, they'll just go in a mode where they don't want to take any action because they're confused, right? Uh, what we typically do is like an 8% preferred return, which means the investors will get the first 8% before we as managers share in anything. So first 8% to the investors. And then above that, there's some sort of split. Maybe it's a 70-30 split, 70% to the investor, 30% to the managers. You can do other things. We've done 80-20 splits flat out, no preferred returns. So it's 80% to the investor and 20 to the managers. Uh, we've done some waterfall Waterfall, just a fancy word saying that the splits change when something happens, like in an, in an event happens or you hit certain thresholds. So if you expect to make, let's just say, an internal rate return of you know 15%, you might say, if we make anything above that, then we're going to split instead of 70-30, it's 60-40 or 50-50, things like that. To me, um, you know, uh, the deals need to make sense for what you're looking for. So if you look at a deal and you say, well, this deal looks better than that deal from a return standpoint, you have to be con you know, conscious when you're a limited partner. One deal might not pay any distributions for 12 to 18 months because it's a really large value add deal. The other one might start being paid right away because it's more stabilized. So a lot of investors look at just the overall numbers. They don't realize how a couple little tweaks here and there can make the returns look much, much better. Uh, in fact, I did a webinar series on that as far as tricks people play, you know, to try to make the deal look better. Um, but you have to be careful with that. If you're interested in cash flow, focus on cash flow. The the whole idea of having, I could show a cash flow deal that has 2% cash flow a year and, and returns 200% over five years. Is, is that realistic? I mean, I don't know, probably not, but you need to know what to look for. Even as a limited partner, you need to know some of the trends to look for, some of the rules of thumb to look for before you invest. So the other day, uh, I had I was explaining apartment syndication to a friend, and they asked me this question. I'd love to hear what you would, have, how you would have responded. They asked me, uh, what are the liabilities that a general partner has um, in, in the deal? 
So a couple things. Uh, one, it's a general partners are also signing on the loan. Let's say they're going to be a key principal guarantor for five units and above. Typically, everything we do is non-recourse loan, which means you know you don't have personal liability unless something happens to trigger personal liability. So even a non-recourse loan will have like bad boy carve outs, which means if you do something kind of you know fraudulent or legal, that the lender can make it recourse which means that now you, as well as the other key principles on that loan, not just the person that did something wrong, but all the key principles can be now uh, recourse liable, right? As a general partner, um, liability is definitely there. Um, it's more limited because you know, you, you're gonna provide, if you're gonna invest in a deal, you're gonna actually have a private placement memorandum you know, and it's going to go through and the word risk, like no exaggeration will show up like 50 times in that document, no exaggeration. So um, you, know, you have to, and then you have to be sophisticated or accredited, you know, to, to invest in a deal, but people can sue people for whatever they want, whenever they want. Right. So your risk could be that people sue you, right. Or they try to remove you. Um, are they going to win? Well, maybe. It depends if you did something wrong that you shouldn't have, have done. That can make a big difference. But you definitely have more risk for sure at a, as a general partner than you do as a limited partner. Um, even if you did everything in your mind correctly, people can still, you know, try to file suit against you or try to make your life, you know, more challenging for that. But, yeah. So keep that in mind that you do have that risk that you don't have as a limited partner. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that kind of goes to show uh, the benefits of being a limited partner over uh, being right. a general partner. But um, to kind of follow up on that, what are some of the ways that you as the general partner mitigate risk when you're underwriting a deal, vetting it and executing the business plan? Yeah, underwriting it, you know, there are two main aspects to it. One is, you know, looking at the cash flow. The other one's looking at the overall return or the internal rate return. Keeping in mind that the overall return and the you know internal rate return are directly impacted by the the cap rate that you think you're going to sell for x years down the road you know say it's five years down the road so what we've done is you know we actually assume that cap rates are going to go up which means if they go up it means that the property value goes down over time now that could mean the property value still goes up because you're increasing your net operating income but if all practical purposes we say Things are going to get worse over time. The other one we look at are things around like rent growth, uh, how much growth is happening from an income perspective the first couple of years. Where is it coming from? Uh, we look at break-even occupancy. How low can you go and still be able to pay all your mortgage and all your other expenses? Uh, we look at break-even rent amounts, things like that. So. You know, it's, it's a very iterative process. You have initial underwriting and then you're also gathering data from third party, you know, if you want to say experts, like a mortgage broker for a loan, insurance broker for insurance quotes, you're involving a property management company. If you're in a new market, you're gonna to wanna to have multiple property management companies involved and you want them to give you their independent projections of how, what they think they can do if they ran the property for you, revenue and expenses. And then we also have industry standards we compare everything against. So that in addition to we have multiple people that want to write a deal before we actually really do a deal, uh, gives us a little more assurance that most people are looking looking at it. Uh, but there are, it's, it's really, cap rate is huge. And then it's really the growth 
And then the expense side of it, when people think they can come into a new deal and just decrease expenses just because they think they're better or more efficient, it's not always the case. Some expenses you have no control over whatsoever. Um, and you know, another big expense that you're likely going to have that will go up is when you purchase a property, property taxes in most areas will go up in some cases drastically. So don't just think you can decrease expenses or use just a rule of th a thumb for expenses. You have to really dig into it. And then, like I said, on the revenue side, it's really trying to look to see how much growth is, is being projected over X number of years. After some point in time, the first couple of years, it should be stabilized now. And then rent growth should be more back to a standard, you know, industry standard, say 2% or 2.5% per year is what you want to kind of see there. Awesome. Awesome. So going back to your first deal, how did you come up with your buying criteria and how is that buying criteria developed as you gain experience? Yeah, I had a really bad buying criteria back then. I mean, I would look at, you, you know, an eight unit, I look at like an 800 unit. I didn't want an eight unit. And, and frankly, um, you know, there's no way I could do an 800 unit back then. Um, so for me, um, I wanted to have one that um, was more occupied. I didn't want to take a big, uh, you know, like we bought property recently as zero percent occupied, right? I, I don't want to do that. I wanted it to be in the 90, 90 plus percent occupied. Um, I wanted kind of a little bit lighter value add, not a huge value add. And it was, it was mid eighties. It was nicer, nicer property and overall perspective. Um, but I was really looking for hundred plus units. That was my criteria. Um, you know, I mentioned, I looked at this one because I wanted to meet the broker and I actually ended up liking the property and, and things like that. Uh, you know, as far as how it's kind of changed, uh, we're looking at bigger, bigger properties now. Um, you know, some of the impact even with, you know, COVID and stuff, a lot of people are like, well, how should I change my criteria for buying? Well, you know, it might, uh, a lot of cases it might change it based on, you know, how much has really been collected in some of these areas. There are some states that are business as usual and have been through the entire pandemic. People are being evicted for not paying. There are other states where, you know, the judges are, even if it's kind of a landlord friendly state, the judges are like, well, hey, you know what? We're, we're closed for like months at a time or we're backed up and people can live there for free. So that's something we're paying a little more attention to is how if things fared from a collection standpoint. Occupancy, I can have a billion 100% occupied. People living there for free, right? I mean, that doesn't do any good. Um, and all, I also personally, if I'm looking at properties for myself, I like more of the, you know, 80s and 90s construction with, uh, you know, maybe that five to $7,000 CapEx. That's kind of what I like. We'll do other properties. We'll do properties that are 60s and 70s construction, but those are the ones that I like overall. Um, the 64 unit that we bought, you know, it was it was more of a challenge for getting full-time property managers there because we kind of need them there when people drive by and want to lease. But also the expenses are a lot higher when you, when you do that. So um, I I like tend to like the larger, larger properties because of the economies of scale there. And then I can mention about the locations where we're looking and things like that. We're Texas and Southeast is pretty much where we're at and starting to go up in the Midwest a little bit as well. Uh, but it's mostly size. Great. That's something that took us some time, but we, of course, we made sure that all the demographics fit what we were looking for. And we were really trying to stay in our backyard. We're lucky to have all three of us and 
going off of you and your wife, and I believe you said that you and your brother started out as well. How important yeah. is it to have a team when it comes to multifamily real estate versus single family? A lot of our audience is, is still in single family and they might be looking to transition into multifamily. Of course, single family, you can, you don't necessarily need a team to do that. So how important right. is it to have one when you're transitioning into multifamily? Yeah. Yeah. First, I would just make a comment, single family to multifamily is that, you know, the good news is the steps are virtually identical. When people are trying to act like everything is, you know, so different, steps are almost identical, but I, there's a lot more components within the steps. It just are. I don't, I say it's not difficult. It's just new, right? Anything new you learn takes time to, to learn it. Right. But team wise, I mean, lending is completely different for, you know, larger multifamily properties and smaller. I mean, it's night and day and very confusing for people just starting out. You have so many different options and you have, you know, all these different kind of uh, angles on the loan you have to look at. Uh, but team is, you know, and then you also have, like, if you're going to syndicate a deal, you have to have an attorney, um, you know, syndication attorney, real estate attorney, just more, more involved, right? Um, so to me, I don't know how you possibly do it without a team in place ahead of time. People try to do it after the fact. I think it's it's really you know risky to do that. But it's not just like your service providers, like an attorney and CPA and things like that. It's also your you know general partnership team. You know if if it was just one of you guys going after a deal and you're like, well, I'm horrible at underwriting deals. Well, you better find someone that's good at underwriting deals. Or I you know I don't think I can raise any money at all. Or you know. Uh, I need help there in that area. You need to have all those things kind of set up as much as possible up front. But you can ask anybody that's done, a, you know, let's say a hundred plus unit deal and they listen to all the podcasts and they've done education and training and all those things like that. When they do a deal, hundred plus units are like, man, that was a lot more involved than I thought it was going to be um, a lot more steps, a lot more time. And they're like, thank, you know, thank God I had other people helping me on it because we have a whole checklist and it's, it's a little overwhelming of the things you have to do. So, you know, you could argue that, well, I'm giving something up if I partner with other people. Yeah, you are. I mean, obviously other people are coming in and helping you. They should get compensated for it too. But the amount of time you spend, uh, you, you can go a lot faster with a team. You just can. And you can work hopefully in areas that you like and that you're good at and, and maybe not work in areas. I know you guys put up your roles and responsibilities to me and I do too. Took us a while to kind of get there to figure out who was doing what, but uh, that's an important thing. So having a, a team in place up front is just critical in my mind. We have another syndicator who said they're not buying right now. They're uh, putting that on hold. So I was just curious um, if you are buying right now, well, what makes you feel like that right now is a is okay time to buy? I'm just curious. Yeah. When someone says I'm not buying right now, I don't, there's a difference between I'm not buying right now, I'm not looking right now. A lot of people are saying they're not looking right now. Um, I don't know why you've stopped looking, frankly. I mean, unless, I mean, what do you, you know, unless you just like, you're so overwhelmed doing something else. But those relationships with brokers, let's say nothing happens for three or six months, but you're developing those relationships with the brokers and they're your top of mind. And the other guy goes, you know, dormant for six months. It just doesn't make any sense to me. During, you know, I was on multiple podcasts during, you know, right in the middle of COVID and people are like, oh, I'm never looking, I'm not looking at any deals right now. I'm like, why, why would you not? Brokers have more time right now than they've had in years to, you know, especially if you're new, to kind of build a relationship with them. Um, so for us, you know, is it trickier now? It is. I mean, reality is instead of things getting less expensive during the pandemic, 
they've got they've gotten more expensive, but there's still deals out there. Um, and you have to be working with relationships with brokers. And for us, we haven't, you know, we haven't compromised on our underwriting to just get a deal. Well, we have to look at more deals to get deals, probably. Um, but to just to just to say I'm not either looking or not buying right now, I frankly it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Um, it just doesn't. So we're we're looking. We did a bunch of deals last year, um, but it was it was a lot of work, right? We had to look at more deals than we typically do. And you know, there's some areas that we own right now that are completely crazy, you know, silly pricing. And you know, we're not really looking as much there. We're trying to look at other areas, but there are a lot of other areas in the country that you can still get really good deals, frankly, on. So, um, you know, I can say we're not compromised on underwriting. That's the biggest thing. And then we're continuing to build these broke relationships and making them stronger. Awesome. Well, yeah, I definitely appreciate, you know, you kind of touching, touching on that. So I know that, of course, you started in single family and then kind of scaled your way into multifamily and did your first deal. You know, and it's been 20, 25 years now. Throughout the whole time, you know, where you began and where are you at now, though, uh, as far as like how many deals you've done, what is like the most important thing that you've learned throughout the whole, your whole career in multifamily? Yeah. Well, you ask how many transactions I've done. Is that your question or, or, yeah. or no? Okay. Yeah. What is like the most important thing you've learned with okay. all that experience? Yeah, I've done, um, I think it's at least 59 transactions total. Um, currently we have, you know, 7,500 or so done probably about 9,500 10,000 or so doors uh, total. Most of that was since uh, 2013 because before it was smaller. You know, the number one thing, and uh, it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't have to be a coach or mentor, or, but to find somebody that's doing what you want to do. Could be somebody you met at a meetup, you know, that's willing to partner with you, but somebody that, you, you know, has done what you want to do from a business perspective and teaming up with them and providing some sort of value to them. But also it's not just, you know, someone that's done what you want to do. In my personal opinion, you need to find people that are like-minded, you know, when, you know, the trust, the integrity, character, no one's going to, you know, sit on a podcast or stage and say, I don't have any integrity or character. Well, there are a lot of people out there that don't. So um, it's, it's also that aspect of it, which is even more important in my mind is teaming up with people that are, kind of, you know, equally yoked, like-minded, and that um, that you like to work with. There's really no reason to work with people who don't like to work with, in my mind. Like, why you have a choice who you work with. So uh, don't get so desperate that you just find somebody. We've seen people that have been, you know, lured in by people that, frankly, if they knew, you know, even a couple of things these guys have done, they would not want to be doing business with them. So just be careful, you know, to go a little bit slower. Our attorney will say, you know, Dugan, you know, Kelly would say, hey, you know, date before you marry. Don't don't get locked into necessarily a partnership with people, but try them out first and see how it goes. But just find someone that's done what you want to do and team up with them. I really appreciate that. And uh, now we'll go into our express round. Um, I'm just going to ask you a quick five questions. Uh, and if you want to tailor it towards business or your personal life, whichever you prefer. Uh, my okay. first question is, what is the biggest mistake you've ever made and what did it teach you? Um, the biggest mistake I ever made probably was ignoring my wife. It taught me not to, is to get my life in balance, frankly. That's probably the biggest mistake I made. I mean, do you have a daily habit that you would uh, credit your success to? Uh, just my daily habit is responsiveness, frankly. I mean, I'll never, you know, 
I always get through all my emails in a day, you know, never, you know, never leave stuff undone, at least following up on it. So to me, it's probably more the responsiveness and, and getting through uh, things on a daily basis. Cause if you don't, they just pile up. And I've talked to a lot of people in our group and that's the one thing that keeps coming up is that uh, you respond very fast. So keep, I I, try I, to. We, we do appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite book that maybe it might be in business or uh, one that you just read on your? Per- yeah, I just read the the road uh, less uh, the road less stupid. Keith Cunningham, I I love the the frankness and you know the if you're doing this you're stupid you know and it's true, you know it's the stupid taxi calls it so actually I just finished that last week. Uh, do you have a favorite piece of advice or quote that you like to live by? Uh, it's not really a quote per se, but I tell people on a, on a pretty regular basis that, you know, don't, even if you have an opportunity to screw somebody, don't. It's too, it's too, life is too short and reality is, you're not a pushover, right? But the reality is that there are a lot of opportunities that, that I've had where I could go back and, and take advantage of somebody. And um, I'd say don't, be fair. You don't have to be a pushover, but be fair. So throughout your life, have you had like a role model or someone that you've looked up to that has kind of helped you along your path in your journey? You know, um, not much, frankly, and it's unfortunate. Um, I think there are a lot of people that people look up to and they find out things about and I'm like, man, I was, you know, so I think if you put your if you want to say your faith in, in a, in a man or a woman that they're going to disappoint you. Um, I mean, I try to live by, you know, uh, the Bible. I really do. And, um, so it'd be more, you know, Jesus and the way he lived, lived his life. But, um, growing up we really didn't have role models for entrepreneurship or anything like that my, my parents were really hard workers, both of them. So that was kind of a role model as far as how to work hard, but not necessarily how to work smart. I don't mean that derogatory. I'm just saying they didn't, they just didn't know, right? But they definitely taught me how to work hard, um, but not necessarily uh, from a business perspective. So not not as uh, not as many people in my life, probably that perspective that I, I wish I did have. What's your favorite way for people to reach out to you or uh, get in contact with you? Yeah, just my email, Mark, M-A-R-K, at thinkmultifamily.com. That's the best way to get a hold of me. So I appreciate it. And um, I know my brothers and I really appreciate your time. No, thank you, guys. Good thank seeing you, Mark. you. Take care. Have thank a great you, day. Thank you for listening to the Real Life Monopoly podcast with the Donis Brothers. If you want to learn more about what we do, make sure to visit our website, www.donisinvestmentgroup.com. And if you aren't already, make sure to follow us on all platforms at Donis Brothers. Let's be great today. Have a good one.